This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And periodically, we bring you just arcane and fun stories about, well, stuff that's just laying around the house, stuff you take for granted. We've told the story of candy corn, where it came from, the story of the carrot, the story of the beard, and the history and story of the toilet. And today, we bring you one of those great all-purpose things around the house that, well, try living without it. And we're talking about the story of duct tape. Duct tape or duct tape? Whatever you decide to call it, the term is often used to refer to all sorts of different cloth tapes with a polyethylene plastic coating. It's usually silvery gray, but it's also available in other colors and even printed designs nowadays. If you don't have one in your garage, you're probably a bad person. Get one. It could save your life someday. Not only can it be used for a wide range of MacGyver-like makeshift repairs, it can also be used for shelter, clothing, and medical purposes. And for the record, duct tape has been in the dictionary since 1899. While duct tape didn't show up until 1965. Besides, you shouldn't be using duct tape on actual duct work, even though that is how it was marketed to homeowners after World War II today. It wouldn't pass inspection anywhere in the United States. Y'all need water, air to survive, nutrients from a chewing tobacco and Coke 45. Some say we need love. Even pain, others trust in money, but I think that's insane. Cause I only need one thing to survive. You can find it at a Walmart for a dollar forty-five. I'm talking about duct tape. You can bandage up your gut. I'm talking about duct tape. You can fix that crack in your butt. I'm talking about duct tape. There ain't nothing you can do. So quit your job, live your life, and go buy a roll The first material called duct tape was just long strips of cotton duck cloth used in making shoes stronger and for wrapping steel cables to protect them from corrosion. In fact, steel cables supporting the Manhattan Bridge were first covered in linseed oil and wrapped in duct tape before being set in 1902. But America's early love affair with duct tape went far beyond practical uses, even in the early years, much as it does today. In 1942, Gimbel's department store offered Venetian blinds that were held together with strips of duct tape. <clears throat> but the idea for what we know today as duct tape came from Vesta Stout, an ammunition factory worker and mother of two Navy sailors, who worried that problems with ammo box seals would cost soldiers time in battle. So she wrote to then-President Franklin D. Roosevelt with the idea to seal the boxes with a fabric tape that she had tested at her factory. The letter was then forwarded to the War Production Board, who then put Johnson & Johnson in charge of the job. Duct tape was now in the battlefield. After the war, duct tape product was sold in hardware stores for household repairs until the Melvin A. Anderson Company of Cleveland, Ohio bought the rights to the tape in 1950 when it was still used to wrap air ducts. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. 
It was around this time that NASA started using duct tape on board every space mission. Astronauts have used duct tape in emergency situations like in 1970 when the square carbon dioxide filters from Apollo 13's failed command module had to be modified to fit round receptacles in the lunar module, which was being used as a lifeboat after an explosion en route to the moon. A workaround used duct tape, which got the lunar module CO2 scrubbers working again, saving the lives of the astronauts on board. And did you know that duct tape can be used to remove warts? While doctors don't actually recommend it, some studies suggest that covering warts with duct tape for an extended period is more effective than existing medical treatments. The TV show Mythbusters devoted three entire episodes to exploring some of duct tape's most extreme applications. The team was able to successfully use duct tape to patch a damaged airplane fuselage construct a functioning cannon, and to lift a 5,000-pound car. Of the 18 myths they tested, only one was busted. It turns out you cannot use duct tape to stop a car that's traveling 60 miles an hour. And duct tape has even showed up in the sordid world of modern art. In 2019, a banana was duct taped to a wall, which sold in an art gallery for $120,000. Has duct taped a banana to a wall. Describe this banana duct taped to a wall. Duct taped this banana to a gallery wall. Another artist decided to peel it off the gallery wall and, yes, eat it. Because I was hungry. <laughs> and then there was the duct tape bandit. So I look like a duct tape bandit, baby. I'm not no duct tape bandit, you hear me? The dude who tried to rob a store using a mask made of duct tape. Duct tape? I mean, this, it's, it's just unbelievable. People don't think this really happened. And those are just some of the many uses for the awesome product we know as duct tape or duct tape. We leave you now with the duct tape song by an artist known as Van Pimpenstein. Or is it Van Pimpenstein? For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Well, I wake up in the morning And I put on my duct tape shoes And I walk down my duct tape steps And I read the latest news And I think of all the problems That this world has to face And how I can solve them all just a couple rolls of tape Well, I build the homeless some houses Put some clothes on their backs And I fill the bellies with duct tape mm. It's my personal favorite snack And I save all the trees I just build a big duct tape fence And I can do all that for about Oh, $50.17 So bring me all your problems Big, medium, small And a couple rolls of duct tape And I'll solve them all I'm talking about duct tape In the reds and oranges and the greens and purples And the mixes of this and that And it will all be the same color A beautiful shade of gray And there'll be no reason to fuss or fight Cause we'll all be the same Well, I'm talking about duct tape You can bandage up good I'm talking about duct tape 
And we're back with Our American Stories. And now Alex Cortez brings us the story of an Israeli immigrant as part of our Immigrant Song series. I mean, the existential um, fear and the existential risk is so great at any moment in one's life in Israel that... um, it makes you go out on a limb. Even in music. And that's not a guitar shredding Led Zeppelin's Black Dog. That's a cello. The cello of the woman who's been called the world's cello goddess, Maya Beiser. We desire to be free, and music gives you, it allows you that freedom. But there are also a lot of rules, because in sort of the traditional education of classical music, you're being taught to follow all these rules about how you're supposed to present yourself, about how certain piece of music should be heard. And these were the kind of things that I always questioned. People have always said, oh yeah, you never followed the traditional path, the predictable way. And to me, that's what an artist does. And I think that's what we all should do as humans. We should aspire to be free. An ideal that Jewish families like hers have chased for decades, making her musical risks seem like nothing. My father grew up in Argentina. He's actually a son of immigrants from Ukraine who escaped from Ukraine in the turn of the century. You know, Jews were not very well liked there at that time. (laughs) And they ended up, they were banned and they ended up going in a boat and coming to Argentina and settling in the middle of the Pampas, creating this little Jewish community in which my father was raised. And he met my mom in Buenos Aires. She was just visiting with her family. My mother grew up in France. This was in the Vichy area of France when the Nazis occupied France. Both my grandparents became partisans. They went into the the woods and they fought against the Nazis. They put my mom and her sister in a monastery where she was raised. All Jews were basically either killed or somehow managed to hide. So this is the background to where Zionists came. At that time in history, Israel was the promised land for Jews who felt like it was the only place where they could be safe. And my father, he was a Zionist and decided to come to Israel. And he convinced my mom to go into this kibbutz, this community. It was a real commune. There was a sense that 
they wanted to make a just world. And so the whole idea of the kibbutz movement was really about creating a society where everybody is equal. And their motto was that you give as much as you can and you take as much as you need, uh, which is kind of a beautiful motto <laughs> for life. Karl Marx's motto, and it is beautiful if it works. More on that later. This kibbutz, which was in the Galilee Mountain, there's literally nothing there. The environment, just to kind of paint for you the environment that I grew up with, was an environment that we were surrounded by Arab villages. In fact, not even a mile from where I grew up, there was a Bedouin village. They were Muslims. There was another village, another mile from there. Some were Christians. There was another one that were Druze, which is another culture. And my father spoke Arabic. He was the people from all these villages. They were part of our household. I mean, they would come. We would go to them. We lived in harmony. And one of my first musical experiences, which influenced me a lot, was hearing the call to prayer to the Muazin every morning at 5 a.m., just waking up and hearing those beautiful singing voices from the villages that were around us. And we went to their weddings. We were always, it was just a wonderful environment. So that was one reality. And then there was the other reality of my childhood, which was we were surrounded by those enemies, right? I mean, there was the Egyptian army, and there was the Syrian army, and there was the Jordanian army. All picking on this little nation called Israel. There was always this fear of war and that we would be attacked and everybody had to go to the army. I mean, 1973, the Syrian army, I mean, we basically spent that war in shelters. It was very scary. And I remember my parents saying, the tanks are very close to the kibbutz. And we really literally thought we might be occupied and killed. So it was, yeah, there was a lot of that. We also had a lot of, during my childhood, there were a lot of small terrorist cells that would go mostly through the Jordan River. Where I grew up, it was right by the Jordan River, so they were coming through the Jordan border and they would take over like hostages. They did them in several kibbutzes at the time and kill them. and. So there was, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of scary thing happening. <laughs> Maya laughs because otherwise she'd have to cry. You know, I see things in, I think, the more, the complexity of the situation. And I see it more than people can really get a sense when, when you just kind of hear it in the news, you know, because it's very complex. And yet one roadblock is rather simple. Islamic fundamentalists like Hamas have the explicit goal of destroying Israel. And that is the big challenge, of course, you know, because there are people there that no, no matter 
what I would say would still want to kill me. They would just want to kill me simply because I'm a Jew or because I'm an Israeli. And so they don't they don't care if I offer to speak about peace. So, so that's, and of course, that's very hard. And especially in a situation where you've got people who are so desperate that they're being manipulated by cynical and sometimes religious zealousy and money from not necessarily good forces like Iran. But what do you do when you have little kids who their mother, their mothers are willing to send them with suicide belts to explode? But ultimately for me in my world and what I can do is I just want to promote in every possible way that I can with my art. I want to promote peace and I want to promote through music, which I think is so important, the, the notion that we're really, that we're really have kinship, we're really close to each other. And so I think if you start peeling all those unnecessary layers of resentment and hatred and all those things, then you hope that eventually, somehow, it reaches <laughs> sort of the depth of our souls. Indeed, and we're listening to Maya Beiser, the cello goddess, and it's so true about music, and we love telling music stories here on this show from our stories of song. There's just the stories of artists and the differences in cultures that are brought together through music, my favorite being Carole King, a young Jewish girl growing up on the Upper West Side, and Aretha Franklin, born in Memphis, grows up in Detroit, the daughter of one of the biggest preachers, the Billy Graham of African-American preachers of the 1950s. And they come together through a song that Carol wrote and only Aretha could have performed, bringing white and black together, north, south, and east, rural and urban together. Only music has that power. And when we come back, we'll continue with Maya Beiser's story here on Our American Stories. we continue with our American stories and our immigrant song and today it's Maya Beiser's story her song cellist Maya Beiser she grew up in Israel in a kibbutz let's continue with her tale in my kibbutz everybody started to play instrument when we were six years old it was just a wonderful thing they also did what they called musical hearing tests, just to kind of see your musical talent. And they found that I had perfect pitch and immediately said, well, you know, you, you have a great talent, you should play the violin. And I didn't 
want to play the violin. And the reason I didn't want to play the violin was because there were all these other people that already played the violin, and I wanted an instrument that nobody else had. And I said, can I play the cello? Nobody in the kibbutz ever played the cello. They didn't have a teacher. But my father had some old recordings in the house of Pablo Casals, who was the great cellist, and he would always play for me since I was little girls, and I fell in love with that sound. And I loved the fact that nobody else had it, so I requested it, and they said, no, we can't, we can't give you a cello, A, because we, we don't have the money to buy a cello, and we don't have a cello teacher, but I insisted, and my father spoke to his family in Argentina and asked them if they would buy a cello for me. So they did, and the kibbutz agreed to let me go outside of the kibbutz to study, which was the most exciting thing ever, because when you leave the kibbutz, you get to wear special clothes. There was like this one room that had special clothes that were only if you go out of the kibbutz, you're allowed to wear them. So I remember putting this special little skirt and, and shirt, and I was so excited. And my father and I took the public bus to the nearby town. It was called Afula. And believe me, it's not a very glamorous town. It's a tiny little town. But for me, it looked like the most beautiful place. And we went into this public library where the teacher came to teach me. It was like magic because it was just this discovery. Within a year, I was very good to the point where she felt that she needed to pass me on to a better teacher, and she recommended that I start studying with this teacher in Tel Aviv, who was the best teacher at the time in Israel. So the kibbutz had to convene, because everything in the kibbutz had to be decided in a democratic way, and they had to vote on allowing me to go to Tel Aviv to study, and they did vote. It was the beginning of a very long journey with the kibbutz where I was basically creating all these precedents that they sometimes were not happy about. <laughs> and in that sense, of course, the kibbutz was a faulty idea, very much so. I mean, it was a beautiful ideal at the time, but they didn't see all the faults that was within when there were a lot of them when yes Karl Marx had some great ideas but in reality they haven't really worked that well as we know after successfully challenging the conventions of her kibbutz Maya next challenged those of the classical music world a few years later I was discovered by the great violinist Isaac Stern who came to Israel and he became my mentor. Stern, in addition to his personal mastery, also discovered Yo-Yo Ma and helped save New York's Carnegie Hall. And a lot of things have changed from there on. But I was playing in, in the, the big man auditorium in Tel Aviv, and it was sort of my first big concert. I was 15 at the time. And my mom took me to buy a dress 
And as you can gather from what I've told you, I had a very strong sense of fashion, which was not necessarily what was the expected fashion from, you know, a soloist with an orchestra. But she insisted that we get this dress, and so I went along with it. And she got me shoes and everything. And just before I went on stage, I just, I felt, again, this urge to kind of do something that would allow me to connect. I think it's really to connect to my freedom. And I decided to just go barefoot. So I went with the dress and I went barefoot and I just did it right before I went on stage so nobody could say anything. And of course, it became a little bit of a scandal. Then I was, okay, I, I really wanted to wear boots and wear like tight leggings. So it didn't necessarily start so much with the repertoire, but it started more with just the idea of theatricality on stage, the idea that when I go on stage, I want to be who I am and not sort of accept somebody else's notion of what I'm supposed to be. And therefore, my fashion and what I wear was something that I wanted to define. The same was true for lighting. I've always wanted to have a certain kind of lighting on stage because I always felt like, why is it that some of my great idols like Janis Joplin or the rock and roll people can do all this great lightings and we as classical performers need to go and play in this very boring, wash of white on stage so i've always asked lighting designers to come and, and do lighting and and some of my first performances here in the united states also like reviews they would saying oh you know she used lighting as if it was some kind of a novelty you know because it was in the classical music world but in terms of repertoire i think the big moment for me was very early on actually which is that I've always had an omnivorous kind of appetite for music. I was always interested in all kinds of music, not just classical music. And for many years, it was a secret. You know, I would listen to Brian Eno and I would listen to Janis Joplin, who was my idol, you know, when I was a teenager. But I couldn't say that to anybody, uh, certainly not in the classic music world, because a lot of these people didn't really consider non-classical music a serious form of art. I just didn't want to limit what I could do with the instrument based on what has been done. What I wanted to do with the cello was to bring all this repertoire that really meant a lot to me, all this kind of music. For example, my collaborations with Arabic musicians, I thought that that was something that was just really important for me because I really loved Arabic music. I would listen to Um Kulthum as a kid, and I thought I wanted to learn how to play this kind of music on the cello. And you're listening to cello goddess Maya Beiser, and this is our Immigrant Song series. And my goodness, she had perfect pitch, but she also had perfectly good rebellious taste. And she just didn't want to do what everyone was doing. Violin? No, thank you. Let me try that cello. Classical? It's nice. No, thank you. Uh, some shoes with that dress? No, I'll try barefoot. 
And in the end, though so many classical musicians didn't respect the music of Janis Joplin or Led Zeppelin or so many of the pop bands and popular music, she was a rebel and she wanted to combine both worlds. When we come back, more of the life of cello goddess Maya Beiser here on Our American Story. Return to our American stories and the final portion of cellist Maya Beiser's story about music and freedom. Maya received a full scholarship to study at Yale, and so this Israeli came to America. To be honest, when I came, I didn't really think I was going to stay here. I didn't know much about the American culture. And I kind of saw myself more going back to France, where my mom's from. And while I was at Yale, I started to come to New York, and I immediately fell in love with New York. New York is my home, <laughs> and it's just there was just something about this city that that is just so great because it's a city of refugees from all over the world, being artist or other. <laughs> Uh, and 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 it's just the energy here is so great, and it allowed me to be the kind of artist that I am. I think living here in New York because you have the space and the freedom to kind of uh, explore whatever it is that you want to do, and so it made me a braver, fearless person because I didn't feel um, suffocated the way I think I felt in some way in the kibbutz certainly and, and in Israel which is a very small society so I um, you know you could re- one can reinvent oneself in New York every every other day and still nobody would really care and I think in many ways that's true for America I mean I think of this country as a place that as an immigrant, I could come here and I could become an American and I feel at home and I feel welcome. And um, it's, it's just, it's a wonderful thing. Maya was in her adopted home of New York on September 11th, 2001. That day was one of the most beautiful, glorious days, and my little girl, I was walking her to her preschool little nursery down the street from us, and I I came back from, from the nursery, and we were sitting in our garden, 
Yes, there are gardens in New York City as well. <laughs> and uh, we were drinking coffee, and I'll never forget that conversation that we had at that, you know, at 8, 8 a.m. that morning because we were talking about how fortunate we are that we no longer live in Israel where, you know, there are terrorist attacks all the time, and we thought how, how fortunate we are that we live in New York City, and, and um, you know, we felt so secured and and of course a few minutes later that horrified thing happened this justin you are looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there that is the world trade center and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers of the world trade center and we started to work on this piece right when that happened it was going to be my first big show for Carnegie Hall and they commissioned the piece they commissioned this whole evening for me and she titled it world to come the idea of world to come it's it's about life after death and what happens just just kind of how is it possible that these thousands of people were there for one moment and then they're gone and where did they go and so it's this notion of of the soul that separates from the body because you have all these bodies. In this case, we didn't even have the bodies. I sing and play at the same time, and the voice, is, the voice represents the soul, which is kind of trying to unite with the cello, which is the body. In the Jewish tradition, there's this notion that when one dies, the soul separates from the body. And then there's this whole time where you're supposed to sort of watch over the body because there's still, it's, it's still kind of a scary time where, where the, the soul sort of tries to leave the body, which is why there are all these rituals, you know, that has to do with purifying the body and all these things to kind of help the soul go, but there also the belief is that eventually the soul tries to reunite with the body, right? And when the Messiah comes, and you know, I'm not an expert on Jewish religion at all, <laughs> but we with this with this piece, the idea was to try to convey that sense of of the soul and the body. And, and there's this moment in the in the fourth movement of World to Come, which is my favorite one, where you just hear the voice. And and then you hear another voice, there's like an echo of the voices that happens. And then the cello comes in with this beautiful melody. It's sort of like this moment where they reunite together. It's one of my favorite work to play. It's, you know, it's dark and somber, but it's also just such a really powerful and beautiful piece.
earlier we played for you some of Maya's covers of rock classics, and they were a part of her 2014 album Uncovered. Where there are no guitars or vocals, her cello does all of the heavy lifting with some assistance from a bass and drum. I think the cello has this incredible ability to be very sweet and beautiful and, you know, melancholy, but it could also be really gritty and kind of dirty. The range is huge. Plus, what I do, you know, because I, I use all kinds of distortions and all kinds of analog boxes and, you know, we have so many beautiful toys. So I put, I, you know, I really, in this album, the Uncovered album, the idea of Uncover was, was to, we called it Uncover, it was sort of like, you know, tongue-in-cheek a little bit, but, but it's, it's the idea that these are covers that sort of uncover the, the inner core of the music. You know, one thing that I always say, every piece of music that we play from the past is a cover. When I play Bach, I'm covering Bach. You know, when I play Mozart, I'm covering Mozart. When I play Beethoven, I'm covering Beethoven. So the idea that there's something different here is is only because, you know, we're so, I mean, the, the classical music basically plays music of the past and it's all covers, right? So and every person sort of bring their own interpretation to it. So I wanted to take those, those great, for me, each and every song in that album was a song that changed me deeply in some way at the moment that I first heard those songs. You know, Jimi Hendrix, I mean, I can't tell you what it did <laughs> to, my, to my musical world. And so I hope that in some way, there is some revelation in those uncovers that it somehow when people listen to it, they kind of hear something they haven't heard in the original. So obviously it does not try to replace the original, which is, I think, all of those originals are, are eternal and glorious. But it just tries, it's, it's tries to create another way to kind of hear those originals. You might think that Maya, with all of her contrarianism, would be casting aside all of the old, like Bach. But this isn't so. Every morning, she starts her practice with Bach. I'm not casting it aside at all. At all. In fact, I absolutely love Bach, and I find it um, very nourishing. So part of the reason why I started every morning with Bach is it's part of my whole meditative way that I start. I also start doing yoga, and I meditate, and, and I play Bach. And I, every day that I play Bach, I try to play it in a completely different way. So I have, I do this kind of mental exercises with myself. You know, but it's just a great way for me to sort of ground myself and um, and kind of also be humble, which I think is a very important thing for an artist. And Bach always makes me very humble. And you've been listening to Maya Beiser, and she is, of course, the cello goddess, or she's known as that, I think, just after hearing her say that humility is a key part of her life. I hope she knows that's tongue-in-cheek. I don't think she'd call herself a goddess. But uh, having her play the covers of Bach and Beethoven 
but also put Zeppelin and Hendrix right in there with those two composers. Well, I think that's just a beautiful thing, and it makes her unique. And by the way, she talks about this country the way everyone does. And in the end, we call this an immigrant song for a simple reason. Everybody plays their song upon the canvas, upon the charts, the musical charts of this country. And it's freedom. That's why she came here. And that's what she loved about the place. And she gets to play it any old way she wants to in each and every one of our lives, an interpretation of that song, of that freedom song. Maya Beiser's life, her story, an immigrant song, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And this next story, well, it's close to home. And by the way, the best stories that we all have are right near us, folks, in our neighborhood, in our families, in our churches, in our businesses. And here at Our American Stories, we've gotten to know one of our workers, an affiliate sales guy from Alabama, and a great guy, a great family. Well, he shared his story with me, and I was just... Well, it wasn't just me. It was everybody in the room listening. It was as if we were hearing a movie being told, a great movie, a compelling movie. It was a heck of a story. And so we asked him to tell it. And so, without further ado, this is a story about everything, folks. Love, hate, family, and redemption. Um, I I had a pattern in my life of... um uh, w- with girls, um, putting me in the friend zone. Um, and one of the, uh, the, the very first girl that ever put me in the friend zone, I remember was in eighth grade and I was in Mr. Dunn science class. And, um, you know, I remember seeing her, um, as it was yesterday. And I, I remember leaning over to my friend Ryan and saying, who's that? And, um, neither of us knew who she was. And I, um, developed the courage to ask her to eighth grade graduation dance. And I guess what I mean by develop the courage, I asked one of her friends to ask her if she would go to the eighth grade graduation dance with me. And, and she said, yes, after that, I, um, you know, told her how much I liked her, wanted to be with her, professed my, you know, undying love for her. And, um, she put me in the friend zone and that, and that would be a pattern that we go on for, for the kind of, uh, the long haul, um, you know, looking back at my childhood, um, there's a, a couple key, key moments that really, um, you know, stick out to me, you know, as far as I can remember, you know, my mom and my dad never really being together. Like that's never a memory that I can remember them actually being together, or being married. But, um, I do remember as it got to be about my first grade year, my mother joined the army. Um, uh, she would kind of bounced around from job to job and couldn't find anything solid. And she really wanted to do something. Uh, to support us, um, and and I have a, a brother, um, Brad, who is um, he's two years older than me, but we have different dads. She um, eventually got stationed in Germany, and that launched into a giant custody battle. 
my dad was a very responsible, hardworking, structured individual, and the obvious best place for me would have been with my father. But um, the court's tendency is to always place the child with the mother unless there's just a an absolute, you know, crazy circumstance that would would lead them to do otherwise. But at that point, I was going to be with my dad and. Um, my mom um, had me go out to lunch right before really they were going to make their decision and we had um, a lunch with my brother and she basically said well you don't want to leave your brother do you and you know there's castles in germany and and basically said all the things to that you'd want to tell a kid to make them want to go that way and i just remember the biggest feeling having is that i didn't want to leave my brother um didn't want to leave my brother in that environment without me to be there with him and i was I think seven years old at that time. And, um, I went back and told the judge that I didn't want to go with my dad, as I had said previously that I, that I wanted to go with my mom. And, and that was, ended up being the ruling after all the time and money and everything that was spent on that custody battle. Um, and I remember leaving the courthouse that day at seven years old, six years old, whatever it was. And, um, my dad looking down at me as we waited for the, the light to turn to cross the road said, you know, I'm very disappointed in you. And that kind of set a pattern really for the rest of my life with my father that I uh, was kind of a, a, a disappointment. Um, and then when we moved to Germany, uh, my mom was still uh, with this abusive guy. He's the one that convinced her to join the army. Um, and when we moved to Germany, um, we lived in what's called the economy. So we didn't live on base. We lived um, in an apartment above a pub and the pub was called Klaus's Pub. And um, my mom and, and her husband, Dave, would drink every night um, and they would fight every night. And sometimes it would become abusive and sometimes the screaming and the um, all those things got to be so bad. Uh, my brother and I would always wonder um, if, if it was going to be us next. And, and fortunately, um, we were never, um, you know, physically abused. Um, but, you know, I remember wanting to protect my mom, but only being you know, eight years old and, and small and having this desire to protect my mom and inability to do so. And it kind of developed feelings of cowardice um, that I wasn't able, you know, to protect my mom. Um, that all came to an end when uh, we started going to church. Um, and, uh, well, she, she left Dave. We moved on base. We started going to church, you know, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and on Wednesdays. And every time the doors were open, we got involved and um, really began to experience um a sense of belonging. And that went on for about a year. Um, and there was no drinking and it was like this stability in our lives. It was like the calm and the storm of my life. As I look back on it, um, I remember coming home from school one day. Um, it was one of my last days of fourth grade and I came home and, um, my mom had been, you know, free from drinking for a year, free from partying. Our life was, you know, so much better. I mean, I came home and there was a beer sitting on the end table beside the couch and I looked at the beer and I looked at my mom and I knew that we were going back into that lifestyle um, and that all that peace and calm was over. I, I was old enough to equate beer with pain um, and you know my mom drinking beer and alcohol with pain and suffering for my brother and I and instability and and I remember being fueled and filled with with hatred and anger uh, towards my mother and I remember screaming at her and telling her that I hated her and that I wanted nothing to do with her and that I wanted to to move back um, you know, to the States and I wanted to move in with my dad. Then um, when I moved in with my dad, I used to go to church with my friend Blair and his mom. 
and we would go to church and it would be fun and it would be fine. But then we'd get in the car and his mom would gossip about everybody in the church all the way home. And then she would pick us up and she actually gave us a ride to school on the days that the weather was bad. And she would just gossip about people in the church the whole way to school and the whole way back. And I'm like, you people are ridiculous. And so what I did is I took a few Christians and I labeled all Christians as these few, right? And so my mind, I had this core belief that all Christians were these gossipy, judgmental um, people. And so I hated them. And when we come back, we continue with this really raw and really real story. And it's Brian Dawson's story here on Our American Stories. back here at Our American Stories, and we continue this remarkable story, again, one that comes close to home, as close as can be, right here on our own staff. Let's continue with Brian Dawson's story. Um, that summer, I went back. So my mom moved back from Germany, and she went to Colorado Springs. So I, I went and spent a summer with my mom in Colorado. Well, my brother was two years older than me, and he had friends that were you know, drinking beer and drinking liquor and going camping and smoking pot and doing all that kind of stuff. And I went out there and I'd never been exposed to any of that stuff personally, obviously seeing my mom drinking and things like that, but never personally. And, um, you know, I remember, you know, drinking a beer and then, you know, trying, um, liquor and the, the, the first, first liquor I ever tasted was hot damn 100. And, um, I was the little brother of not only my big brother, but that whole group. And I fit in, and I and and the more I drank, the more I fit in, and the more I drank, the more comfortable I was in my own skin. You know, they call it liquid courage, but it was so much more than liquid courage for me. It was liquid. I can actually deal with life. Um, everything in my life, I've always been very intense and very um, all in, whatever it was that I was doing. And and I began to drink, you know, heavily. I was drinking tequila, whiskey, um, hot damn, that whole summer, and. Um, you know, the following summer I went back to Colorado and I started to smoke pot. And as I smoked pot, um, it was the same thing. You know, I, I just enjoyed not being who I guess I thought I was. You know, I, I eventually made it when I was 16 years old, I got my driver's license. I made a fake ID on a computer and, um, I got to the point where I could go and buy liquor. And then I became very popular for that reason. So there was a lot of it was fitting in and, and all of those things And I, I would go and I was able to, you know, buy liquor for these parties, which made me like the coolest person, you know, in the party. And, you know, I would drink to the point of blacking out once or twice a week. And this is as a 16 year old. And meanwhile, I was, you know, working a job at, um, Dylan's, which is a, a Kroger store and, uh, playing football, playing baseball and, and somewhat maintaining my grades. I went from a straight A student to probably about a C student. Um, and I just, I stopped caring about school, which is interesting because up to that point when I started, you know, drinking and, and doing drugs, all I cared about was school. 
I, I got straight A's. I scored off the charts on all these tests, the standardized tests, and um, I didn't care about school anymore. All I cared about was the social aspect, the partying, the girls, um, and, and just and, and being wasted, basically. Um, the summer between my junior and senior year, I went out to Colorado, and my brother was um, a driver for a, I wouldn't say notorious, but a pretty big-time drug dealer um, in Colorado Springs. Uh, his name was Casey, and um, my brother had a driver's license and a nice truck, so Casey would just, you know, have him drive him around, and, you know, they'd be dropping, you know, mostly pot, but, you know, whatever around, and the craziest things would happen, man. So I spent the whole summer riding around with them, you know, just seeing him be this this alpha male that everyone looked up to and everyone respected, and he had money, and he had girls, and he had all these things, and I'm like, that's what I want to do. So I went back to uh, Kansas that summer, and um, and here's the thing, up to that point, I was excelling in football and I did really well in baseball too, but, um, I excelled in football and, um, we had a great football team that year and I was really coming into my own as a, a defensive end and, and, and a tight end on offense. And, um, we were expected to, to do really, really well that year. And I was so torn between really wanting to, to pour myself into football or pour myself into this party life. And, um, I had tried cocaine when I was out there. So I was I was really starting to do more serious drugs as I'm going into my senior year. And I started my senior year, and I got about two weeks into it. And I snuck out of the house, and I went and tried ecstasy with some of my friends. And a couple of the guys were actually um, football players on the team. And um, I remember trying to sneak back in, and I got caught. And he told me that I had to quit football and go to rehab, or I could quit football and go to, to Colorado. But I wasn't going to continue playing football this is really when the resentment with my dad hit its peak. Um, and then kind of to give the narrative of my dad this whole time, again, him not being an emotional guy who, you know, says, hey, what's going on, Brian? Hey, you know, how are you feeling? How are you doing? Why are you doing this? It's, hey, I won't tolerate it. Not in this house. You ain't going to do that. Not my son. Those were kind of his ways of parenting was putting his foot down and yelling. Um, and, and again, you know, he didn't have a dad to, to teach him. So he, you know, he's a wonderful provider. He was at all my baseball games, all my football games, all my practices. Um, he got up at four 30 in the morning and went to work every day to make sure we had a house and things like that. So, um, I decided to quit football and move back to Colorado with my mom. And what that basically meant is I was on my own and I just started partying full blown. And I started working for Casey and started selling weed and um got involved in that lifestyle and then i started doing cocaine on a pretty regular basis and as i did cocaine i realized hey man i can't pay for cocaine selling weed so i started selling cocaine and i just had this knack and this ability to um rise to the top in these in these i guess you know drug dealer ladders uh of of influence um i just had a knack for for that life and um, so I started selling a little bit of Coke and next, you know, I was selling a lot of Coke and I was doing a lot of Coke and it got to the point, it was so bad. I would have to take Xanax to go to sleep and then I would wake up the next day and really the next evening at like four or five in the evening, I'd wake up, I'd blow my nose and snot and cocaine and blood would come out. My nose would just be bleeding and bleeding and bleeding. As soon as it would start to kind of slow down a little bit, I would do another line and start drinking. And then that was what I did. Um, and it got so bad to where I couldn't even like breathe out of my nose anymore. Um, my friend tried to introduce me to crack and, um, I'm like, this isn't for me. Um, so then, uh, he, um, he had me try, um, crystal meth 
and that was it. And once I did crystal meth, it was um, there was no having to take Xanax to go to sleep. There was no drinking whiskey to mellow out. It was just it was wide open. Um, and already at this point, when I started doing meth, I already had um, my first felony uh, arrest. Um, I was arrested with a half ounce of cocaine and um, had bonded out and got probation and all those things and didn't slow me down. I, I continued to use drugs, continued to party, didn't go to my probation appointments, didn't do any of those things. And um, I got to a point where I was very well known in Colorado Springs um, for my ability to sell drugs and do a number of other things. And I remember getting a phone call from a girl named Camille and she said, um, I've got some pretty serious guys that I know um, that want to talk to you about, you know, kind of you partnering with them or working with them. And so I came to her, her apartment and I walked into her apartment. I remember it, it was um, kind of an uneasy feeling. And um, there was um, some very mean looking, um, dark, uh, nefarious looking uh, individuals that were uh, Hispanic guys, Mexican guys, and they had handkerchiefs on over their faces, And um, but they were in suits. It was weird. And I'm like, well, I'm either going to get killed or this is going to go really well. And, um, you know, they sat down and just talked to me and asked me a bunch of questions and asked me what I could do for them. And I think they were kind of new to coming into Colorado Springs to do what they, it was that they were wanting to do. And they needed somebody to help them. So um, they asked me to do that. And, and I did that. And uh, not long after that, I ended up getting in a high-speed chase with the cops and ran. And I had a briefcase with meth and a pistol. Got pulled over with that, got arrested, um, spent four and a half months in jail, county jail on that, got probation again, got out, went right back to it. Um, and by that time, um, a lot of my connections had either gone back to Mexico or had been arrested as well. And I got into, um, basically, I mean, I guess what it looked like was we would steal four wheelers and uh, motorcycles and things like that and give them to Mexicans that were bringing them back across the border into Mexico and then they would pay us in drugs. I was supposedly the the ringleader of that whole thing. I don't know how true that was, but that's the way it was in the in the cops' eyes. And um, they busted a house that had some of those motorcycles in them, and um, they um, pressured the guy who was there, and, and he told on me and said, you know, it was me. I was the one that was doing this. I was running all these rings. So um, he and a bunch of other people had told the cops that I was responsible for you know all this crime that was going on, and um, I eventually got arrested. And I did another four months in county jail uh, and ended up bonding out after those four months. And in that time, I got my discovery, and it said that, you know, who had told on me. Um, I was out um, driving around up to no good. I'd been up for four days. Um, we drove by the guy's house who told on me, who was the main informant in the case. And um, the guy I was with kept pumping me up. Oh, no, we have to go in there. You know, we can't let him, you know, just let him tell on you and you not doing anything. And so we went, you know, went up to the front door, knocked on the door, and he opened the door and um, walked in the house and asked him why he told on me. And he said, you know, told me, well, I didn't tell on you, Brian. I would never tell on you. And uh, I knew that he had, he was the informant in my case. So um, I began to, to beat him up really, really bad. And um, the guy I was with hit him in the head with a, a blunt force object. It was called a blackjack, and it cracked his head open. And I thought he was going to die. So, you know, we... Um, we grabbed a few objects out of his house and we left. And by the time I got back to my house, um, I ended up getting arrested and charged with attempted murder, uh, aggravated robbery and extortion. And on top of all that, this was a, 
a guy who estates evidence, so he was an informant that I did all these things to, so that aggravated it. And my goodness, what a story. And when we come back, you won't believe where it turns and where it goes. Brian Dawson's story, one of our staffers here at Our American Stories. More after these messages. Turn to Brian Dawson's story here on Our American Stories, and let's pick up where we last left off. I was I was on the run. Uh, I bonded out again, and uh, I was out on like I don't know a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of bonds. And I was supposed to go to a court date, and I ended up not going to that court date. So I became a fugitive. And um, shortly after that, I became one of Colorado Springs' most wanted criminals, uh, most wanted fugitives. And it was intense. I mean, they were um, raiding houses. They were setting up perimeters all throughout Colorado Springs. As I don't know if you've ever seen them, like they basically have roads blocked off and they're showing pictures of me to every car that stops and goes through there. Um, if you ever follow Dog the Bounty Hunter, um, Dog the Bounty Hunter did most of his shows in Colorado Springs. Some in Hawaii, but most of them were in Colorado Springs. And Dog the Bounty Hunter was on a 72-hour, 72 72-fugitive 72 sweep when I was on the run. And he said he wasn't going to go after me because I was supposedly, you know, too threatening or, or menacing or whatever for him to go after me. Um, so it got, it became very real. And, um, there was a couple near misses where they, they almost had me and I was able to escape from them. And then, um, they finally caught me and I was in my safe, I guess you call it a safe house. Um, it was a third story apartment in Colorado Springs and they finally closed in on me and I remember sitting in the apartment that day. I was watching the Chappelle show. It was my last day out, July 19th, 2007. I'm watching the Chappelle show, cooking bratwurst in this apartment, and I look out the window, and I'm on the third story, and I see the front end of a cop car, and I know that it's a cop car, and I knew that was it. I just knew. I knew, um, okay, well, this is it. And um, there wasn't much in the apartment, but there was a recliner that was wider than the window was. So I'd taken a uh, nylon rope, a rappelling rope, and I tied it to the bottom of the recliner. Um, and I hear the door pounding. Carter Springs police open up, and they're kicking in doors, making their way down to me. So I kick out the window and wrap my, my hand around the rope, and I jump out the window. And the recliner sticks and wedges right in the window just like I wanted it to. And, and as I'm hanging there around both sides of this apartment building, these police come flooding, and there's 40 or 50 cops made up of El Paso County Sheriff's deputies, Colorado Springs Police Department. They come pouring around the side with their guns pulled and drawn on me. You know, get on the ground, get on the ground, get the F on the ground, and I'm like, I don't know where else I'm going to go, and I look up, and there's cops, you know, cops above me, cops below me. So um, I pulled up a little bit on the rope, unwrapped the rope with my hand, and dropped, and I dropped three stories, and I landed, and it's a miracle that I didn't get hurt there, but I landed and rolled, and then there was um, two canine units right there with the dogs barking in my face. Um, I, and I remember laying there, and I could feel the heat from the dogs. And I'm just like, <laughs> these dogs uh, don't bite me. But that was it. And um, an officer stuck his knee in my back and cuffed me. And um, they put me in the back of the cop car. And the craziest thing is I remember the relief that I had as I sat in the back of that cop car because I knew it was all over. I remember Rihanna's... Um, umbrella song was on in the cop car as we were heading you know to county jail i just had a sense of peace for whatever reason and um and i, I ended up getting into um county jail 
where I would find out um, that I was facing 384 years in prison. And um, with facing that much time, I started to, to get involved in, with some, some rough groups in, in the jail, thinking that I'm going away to prison for the rest of my life. I have to make a name for myself. I have to be tough. I have to be this this guy, this prison guy. So I get into a bunch of fights. Um, you know, I'm going up to these older kind of gangster guys, and they're saying, "Why well, need you to go beat this guy up, and I need you to go beat that guy up. So I'm doing these things, and I eventually end up in administrative segregation, uh, which is when you are in a concrete cell. Um, it's about 8 foot by 12 foot, and there's a bunk in there. There's a metal bunk with a fire-retardant mattress and a fire-retardant pillow, and a sink that is attached to a toilet. It's a one-piece toilet sink and a desk. And that's it. That's all you have in there. And I was in there for 23 hours a day. And I would get one hour where I could go make a phone call, take a shower, and I would go back in my cell. And I was there for several months. And in that time frame that I was in administrative segregation, I had um, a revelation. It was one of the, it was an epiphany. It was an aha moment. Um, uh, and it was, and it, and it seems silly, but it, it was, it was, it was huge. Um, and I, and as I look back on it, it's the point as I try and counsel people who have been through these things before or that are going through these things now, because people come to me because I've been through them before they ask me, you know, what would you tell them? And this was the one thing that happened and I'm sitting in administrative segregation, um, in this, in this cell by myself, been there for a couple months. And all of a sudden I realized this is my fault. This is all my fault. And I know that seems silly or it sounds, you know, stupid or whatever, but really, no, this is all my fault because up to that point, I blamed it on my mom. I blamed it on my dad. I blamed it on the judges. I blamed it on, um, basically, um, everyone but me. I blamed it on corrupt system, you know, all the district attorneys. I mean, you name it. I blamed everybody. But then all of a sudden I realized this is my fault and it was so liberating and it was so freeing because I realized if my choices created this circumstances, certainly I could make better choices that would create better circumstances. And I, and I, and I came to this realization that my choices are what create my circumstances, not the other way around. I wasn't a victim that I'd created these circumstances through my choices. And from that moment forward, I made a decision that I was going to do things differently. And I did, and it wasn't easy. Uh, I had habits. I had, you know, thought patterns. I had all these things that were wrong. But I knew that I could make better choices and that I was responsible for my choices. And I, and I started doing that and from that moment. Um, I got on the phone. I called my grandma with tears in my eyes um, and told her that, that I was going away forever. And, and she said, you know, I can tell there's been a huge change in your life, Brian. I can't put my finger on it. I don't know what it is, but I can tell there's something very different about you. Um, because up to this point, they all cut me off. I burned every bridge in my family. They were done with me. She said, we're going to get you an attorney. And, um, she did. And the next day I, I went to court, um, someone that was supposed to show up to the court court date to be a witness in my trial. If I went to trial that day, didn't show up. So they had to postpone it for two weeks. Total miracle. The attorney was able to take my case and get me into what's called a mediation hearing. And what a mediation hearing is, is where you basically go into arbitration with your sentence. And it's like a used car sales. Well, I'll give you this. Well, no, we want that. Well, I'll give you this. And no, we want that. And they started at 32 years and I started at eight years. And a mediator went back and forth between the district attorney and my lawyer and I, back and forth, back and forth. And they finally came down to a 15-year sentence with a crime of violence sentence enhancer. And I told them, I don't, um, 
I, I, I don't want that sentence enhancer. I don't want to be labeled a violent criminal. I don't want to go to some, you know, hardcore prison and end up with swastikas all over my face and turn into that guy. I want to change my life. I want a chance at changing my life. I said, tell her I'll give her a year if she drops that crime of violence. So I ended up getting sent, sentenced to 16 years and they dropped the crime of violence. Um, and I went back to my cell after that mediation and I knew that God had moved in my life. So, um, I went from there, um, I got sentenced. I got sentenced to 16 years, and then I went to the Denver Reception and Diagnostic Center. This is a maximum security prison, and you roll up in a van, and there's rolls upon rolls of razor wire. There's gun towers with armed guards in the gun towers. Um, they've got um, these little mirrors that go under the vans that see if there's bombs under the vans. And it's just, it was very sobering. It was very real that, hey, I, I'm in prison. Um, that's happening now. Um, and I went in there and I was there for a little while and they sent me to my first, um, first facility in Werfano County Correctional Center. It was Walsenburg, Colorado. And it was, uh, a private prison. Um, and there's a lot of, um, bad things that, that surround the idea of private prisons, but I had nothing but a very positive experience there. Um, it was very evident that everybody there, um, that was involved with the staff members there from our case managers to the teachers and things like that, um, that they wanted criminals to, to be rehabilitated and they had a lot of programs. So, um, I immediately started taking programs. I got my GED, um, while I was at Walsenburg and then I started taking college classes and then I became uh, a guy that helped other guys get their GED. Um, and that's what I did for work in there as I was a tutor and I helped people get their GEDs. And when we come back... The final installment of this remarkable story, one that hits close to home, our own Brian Dawson. His story continues here on Our American Stories. To Brian Dawson's story and what a story it is and again this one hits close to home he's one of our people and by the way it just shows you that anything can happen in a person's life here he is in prison and he's already you can hear it he's a changed guy and he wants to just get through this and come out on the other side and so he's reoriented himself and his life right there in what may be the very worst place in America to be as a young man Let's return to Brian's story. I was there for about nine months, but the very first person I met when I walked into Walsenburg was a guy by the name of Charles Frederick. And he comes up to me, he's this big guy, big burly guy. And he says, hey, my name's Charles and I'm a Christian and this is a faith pod. So in these prisons, they had these um, pods, they're called faith pods. And it was basically pods or units made up of about 120 inmates and it was dedicated to discipleship. And I don't know how I landed in there, why I landed in there. Um, but I was there and Charles began to just tell me about Christ. Tell me about who Jesus was. Tell me about the gospel. I told him, Charles, I don't want to hear that stuff. You know, um, I don't care. 
Um, and you know, he, he just said, okay. And then we, he began to talk to me about other things and he met my physical needs. He gave me coffee. He gave me shorts. He gave me, you know, things that, you know, you get in there, you got nothing other than a couple pairs of underwear and, and a green suit. So he helped me, um, with some of those things and just became my friend. And, and as conversation would permit, he would tell me about Christ and that would go on for about nine months. He got shipped to another prison. Um, I left that prison. They shut that prison down. Um, and my security level dropped and I bounced around a little bit for a couple of years. And then I ended up in Sterling Correctional Facility in Sterling, Colorado. The first person I see, there's Charles again. And he starts telling me about Jesus Christ again. And um, I'm like, man, I don't want to hear this stuff. Well, um, we're there for a little bit. And he goes, hey, you know, you got parole coming up in a couple of years. It would be good for you to have some certificates um, to, um, you know, show the parole board. I'm like, okay. And he goes, well, I'm, I'm the chaplain's assistant. I can get you in some programs. I'm like, okay, yeah, go ahead. Sign me up. So, um, he signs me up and, uh, they end up being faith-based programs. And I'm like, oh, I hate you, Charles. But the very first program I went into was a, um, uh, come as you are. We love everybody, you know, Muslim, Buddhist, Christian, whatever, just come as you are. And I went there and it was, it was okay, but I experienced fellowship and I met other Christians that were like Charles who are true, genuine Christians who lived this out. Um, they didn't just say they were Christians with their mouth. They lived it. And, and you could see the wisdom and things that they had. And I was, I was attracted to that. And, um, that went on for about 13 weeks. That class was over. And then Charles got me into another program called the truth project, um, which is put out by focus on the family and, and Dr. Del Tackett, amazing program. But when I got in there, it was not come as you are. It was, this is what the Bible says. Um, and I didn't like that. And I would sit, we would watch a video for an hour, and then we would have table discussion. And at the table discussion, I would argue with everyone there and tell them how stupid they were for believing what they, you know, th that they believe these things. And I almost got into a couple of fights with those guys. And um, about three weeks into it, we were walking back to the unit, and Charles just asked me, he says, Brian, why don't you just give him a chance? And I'd been asked that question before and, 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 and fought it and fought it and fought it. And for whatever reason, I said, okay, Charles. So, um, I went back to my cell that night and, um, I prayed, okay, God, if I need to believe these things to have a relationship with you, give me some kind of a sign. And I went to bed that night and I remember being in a really deep sleep and I had a nightmare. And in that nightmare, I fell off of a cliff and I woke up startled out of a nightmare and kind of, <gasps> and I looked and, um, it's really dark in the cells and we had, we're allowed to have digital clocks in there. And, and the digital clock with the red numbers in the cell said three, sixteen. The only Bible verse I'd ever known as a kid, um, at all was John three sixteen. And if you know, John three sixteen, it answers the question that I asked him. That's exactly right. Yes, you do need to believe those things. And I tried to go back to sleep and just brush it off. But I, I, I looked back at the clock and I felt like it was 316 for like 30 minutes. And I'm like, okay, maybe there's something to this. And uh, it was a Sunday morning at 316. So I got up and, and I went to uh, went to the church services that they offered in the prison. And um, I went and found my friend Ramon. I always had this idea in my head that Christians were weak. And my friend Ramon was a big black um, former gangbanger that had become a Christian. And there was nothing soft or weak about this guy. So I'm like, okay, I'll go with him. And I'm sitting in the very back row in the very far side as he goes through the sermon. And at the end of the sermon, um, the pastor does what he calls an invitation. I look at Ramon and I say, what's an invitation? And he goes, uh, he didn't say, oh, that's where you go make a decision for Christ or you invite Jesus in your heart. He didn't say any of that stuff. He said, if you've got something in your life that's hindering your relationship with God, you can go up there and pray with that man about it. So I went up there and... Um, I prayed with uh, Chaplain Davis, and to, to tell you a little about him, he's a 
um, a hard man, a callous man, a cowboy. He's a man's man. He's a prison chaplain. And he doesn't do hugs. He doesn't do any of those kind of things. And, and he grabbed my, my hand to pray, and I could feel the calluses on his hands. And he slaps me on the shoulder with his other hand, and he says, how can I pray for you? And I told him, I said, look, you know, I don't, I'm not here to make any decisions. I just, I need you to pray that God would remove this callus from my heart because it's hardened and it's angry and it's angry towards Christians. So I, I want him to soften my heart so that the truth can come in. And Chaplain Davis prayed that. And I remember looking up after we were done praying and he's in front of 130 inmates with tears pouring down his face. And um, I knew something was very real about this and I didn't know how to describe it, but it was, it was, it was very real. <clears throat> and I would later find out that Chaplain Davis and Charles had been praying for me for about a year and a half um, that I would get saved. And from that moment forward, I began to read my Bible. Uh, I read my Bible every single day. I would get up and read my Bible, read my Bible. I was at every single church service that they offered, any faith-based program they had. In that prison, I was there. There was a huge change. I went from telling these people they were stupid for believing what they did to absolutely believing it, basically overnight, and, and, and following that up um, with my behavior, following the change of heart that I had. Uh, that went on for about a year. And uh, my friends all had pen pals that they were writing when they were in prison. So I prayed and said, all right, God, um, I'd like to have a pen pal. And I got on the phone with my mom, and she was running a Facebook page for me. She says, you got a friend request from a girl. I'm like, okay, cool. Who is it? And she goes, do you know a girl named uh, Christina Ewan? I'm like, yeah, I know Christina Ewan. Um why? And she goes, well, she sent you a friend request. She remembered you and that she's been trying to find you for, you know, on and off for the last 10 years. I said, did you tell her I was in prison? Yeah, I told her you were in prison. She doesn't care. She wants to write you. I'm like, well, that's crazy. So I got her address and <clears throat> everything we did, all of our correspondence was based on Christ and what God was doing in our lives. And that was it. And that went on for several months. And um, I just knew that this was, you know, too crazy for it not to be God lining this up for something bigger, but I was scared to death because she's rejected me so many times in the past. And I had to write a letter and I sat down and wrote this letter and said, look, you know, I just, I, I feel like, you know, this, this is kind of something that may be meant to be and that, that, you know, I know it's asking a lot of you, but, um, that, that maybe we could ride this out together and, and get married when I get out type of, um, you know, this is meant for something more. And, um, I get the letter back and I remember hearing it at mail call and seeing that the letter was from Christina, knowing that the answer was going to be inside of that envelope. And I opened the envelope and pulled out the letter and began to read it. And in the very first paragraph, she said, Brian, I've been thinking the exact same things. And I know God wants me to be with you and that I'm supposed to be here for you through this time. And that, you know, that we're, we're meant to be together. Um, and I remember reading that sitting in prison. And I mean, I could have floated up the steps to go back to my cell. It was, um, it was amazing. So, um, but I put in for a halfway house about six months after that. So I ended up getting accepted to that program. Um, my very first time putting in for a halfway house, which almost never happens with uh, the severity of my sentence and the size and scope of my sentence. Um, I got out my very first time um, putting in and, um, so it was, it was a very, very tough two years, but I graduated, um, and, uh, Christina was there for the graduation and the first visit I was allowed to go on actually before I graduated, um, <clears throat> Christina and I, um, got married we got, we eloped, I guess you could say we got married at my grandma's house. Um, and, uh, a pastor that used to come into the prisons, um, did my, my marriage ceremony. So it was him and his wife and my grandma were the only ones there at the wedding. And my mom was on speakerphone and, <laughs> 
So my wife and I now have um, three daughters plus my stepson Brennan, who's an absolute stud, um, brilliant, smart kid, um, does very well in sports. My girls are um, three years old uh, is Gracie, two-year-old is Reagan, and our one-year-old uh, is Abigail, and we have another one on the way. So not only um, do I have, and this is kind of a cool um, caveat to the story, I've got a little piece of property with a you know little house um, and a, you know the wife of my dreams and beautiful children. Uh, four beautiful children about to be five, but I just moved my mom's, um, she has a camper and I just moved her camper onto my property and my mom, who I had obviously all that resentment and animosity towards, she now lives on my property and she's Mima to the kids and she got saved about two years ago and she's a completely different person. So, um, again, like you, I could not have sat in jail um, you know, five, six, seven years ago, whatever it was, and said, okay, in five or ten years, this is what I want, um, and ever thought it would be what it is now. And what a story, folks, and uh, I'm tearing up here because I know Brian, and and to, to imagine that that can happen in people's lives, anyone listening, having someone in prison, someplace that you just don't think they can come back from, my goodness, it's possible. And we do faith-based stories here, folks. We don't shy away from it. There are all kinds of things that can get people out of a jam. And sometimes it's God, and sometimes it's a, it's a secular counselor. Uh, but we don't shy away from the, the religious aspect of people's lives here on this show. We don't preach, we don't proselytize, but we don't remove it. And my goodness, Brian Dawson's story is unimaginable without God. And send your stories, by the way, if you have a story like this, and I know you do. Because, my goodness, this country is filled with stories like this, and we're, we're tired of the negative stories. We want to hear stories of real hope, not the silly kind, the rugged kind. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Brian Dawson's story, a beautiful family, a beautiful story of love and redemption, here on Our American Stories.